Hello and welcome to the Body Electric Podcast. Uh, my name is Nathan Hiltz and uh, this is episode 21 for January 28th, 2017. Hi everybody, uh, it's been a while. I hope you're doing good. How's it going? I've missed you. I've missed doing this thing. Um, I've been busy with my little daughter. Uh, she's been growing up real fast. She's just over a year old now. And uh, I haven't had a chance to really get together with anyone and do these chats. Uh, but this week, I was lucky enough to get together with uh, the great electric bassist, Vaughn Meisner. And I had a fantastic time hanging out, playing with him and talking to him. Uh, so I feel really inspired. I'm going to get back on the, uh, the old podcast horse and uh, try to do more of these more often. Um, so anyway, uh, Vaughn, yeah, Vaughn's cool. You know, I, I didn't know that he uh, had spent so much time down in the U.S., and uh, I didn't know that he kind of hung out with some really, really heavy uh, American players back in the day. So uh, it's kind of interesting to uh, to learn something about someone that I never really knew anything about. I always knew he was heavy and that he could really uh, fly on the base, but I never knew all that stuff. So I really hope you enjoy the chat. Um, and yeah, if you want to get in touch with me, you can go to my website, NathanHiltz.com. Uh, you can email me, NateHiltz at gmail.com. Um, yeah, so hope you're all well. Enjoy the show, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Nice to see you. Yeah. Thanks for doing this with me. Thanks for yeah. thinking of doing it. Sure, yeah. yeah it's nice to uh, see where you live, too. I mean, to put a home to the, the person. It's very, I mean, obviously this is an audio recording, so okay. people can't see this, but very minimalistic, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of my thing. You know, yeah? Until yeah. they look into my face, it's kind of my aesthetic thing. Yeah, totally. Like there's not really anything on the walls except there is a mirror. Yeah. There's a mirror and a smoke detector. Very good. <laughs> yeah. You know? Clock. A good clock. Yeah. I like it. I, I kind of, I got a kid, so I can't really be minimalistic. It's just, <laughs> I have junk yeah. everywhere and stuff. But yeah, yeah. I get it. Yeah. So it's on your base. Your bases too are pretty simple. You like a... Yeah. Well, this is the only one. This is the only base that you play on? This is the only base I have, yeah. Oh, really? What, yeah. what kind of base is it? This is, this is, uh, it's made out of warmest parts. It's a solid rosewood mix, as only you can see, uh -huh. and uh, alder body. So it's kind of like everything that I like and learned from playing jazz basses for years, and nothing that I don't like about playing. So it just has the pickup that I use, mm. the volume and tone, so it's, you know, you're not finagling with, mm. you know, preamps and a whole bunch of knobs and stuff. So most of the sound should come from wood in, in your hand so heavy I just kind of you know pared it down and uh, also I think you know kind of simplicity is good when it comes to the acoustic component of uh, an electric instrument mm -hmm. even though that's not the part that's amplified it does contribute hugely to the tone mm -hmm. so the less complicated you know the less pieces of wood you have glued together you know resonate the whole thing is going to be right and did you put it together yourself, or did yeah. you have someone do it? Yeah, yeah you just, uh, you know, you order the parts from them. The parts, because of the shapes of them, are, are a direct copy of what Fender makes. Um, mm -hmm. The parts are licensed by, by Fender, uh, mm -hmm. the stock shape and the, and the body shape. And all the dimensions are, you know, Fender, so it's basically 50-foot precision. Um, but this dimension is, at the dimension at the nut is that of a jazz bass, you know, mm -hmm. yada, 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 all kinds right. of stuff. But it's really cool, and uh, it uh, uh, 
sort of took a long time to arrive at that. You know, when you when you play a whole bunch of jazz basses and then and then you know you cut into them to add pickups or preamps or or you know right. like why even just play right? You know. Right. So you've been through all that. Yeah, I've been through all that. Yeah. And, and you know, I think I think you just kind of have to get to that place. I know I, a lot of my students are going through that now. You know, you do your best to try and advise them and say, don't waste your money, you got a good base, just keep going. Mm. <laughs> you just know. play what you have and go. Yeah, but yeah. then I remember the days like in the 80s, <clears throat> guys like um, uh, Jeff Anderson, the guy that I studied with, and uh, and Marcus Miller, you know, they, they cut into their bases and modified them extremely because they didn't have really good bases and they didn't really have the bread to buy another one in the early days, you know? Right. So, I mean, that's the truth and the reality of it, I think. It's like, well, you know. And then those guys do that, and they, they play their asses off, and then they, you know, everybody that listens to them thinks that they gotta have this pickup or this preamp. Well, because Marcus yeah. does, or because yeah. Jeff Andrews does. Right. And, and it's just, like, not that way. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Anyway, reminds me of uh, like Chet Atkins. There, there are there's so many models of guitar with Chet Atkins' name on it. Yeah, it's absurd, you know. Yeah. And they're still making them, yeah. even though he's been gone for a long time, you know. Yeah, and and man, he sat down with any guitar and the same tone came out no matter what it was. You're right. You're totally right. Yeah. 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 But I mean, hey, uh, anyone listening to this wants to give me or Vaughn an endorsement, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd be totally willing to uh, sell my soul. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, your bass for money. Yeah, <laughs> cool, man. Uh, well, let's hear this bass then. Uh, what do you What do you feel like uh, playing for? Um, how about I hear Rhapsody? Okay, I would love to. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> Thank you. 
something in me and he said hey you know you want to play it and I said well I don't really know how yeah right um, I was interested in it uh, my father was a studio musician at that point I guess it's possible oh really I didn't know yeah, that yeah 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 he's, uh, he's actually one of the Lori Bowersons and if your subscribers know more about him he, he, he had a vocal group that did most of the jungles like in this country and they used to do radio station IDs for like stations all over North America, you know, no you way. Know, where they would like sing their call letters. Of it's like 93.5. Yeah, that stuff. And like they'd be singing in harmony or something. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, cool. To do that and I really doubt 93.5 flow has <laughs> that kind of thing anymore, <laughs> no. but uh, <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. I mean, like he did everything and he wrote and sang. Anyway, so, you know, I was, I was interested in it because I grew up with it. Mm. And this piano player guy, you know, I mean, I used to borrow bass from strings when we would go into the stage band room, which is a, another room for that, and they had a nice piano in there, and he'd play piano, and I would like, you know, have my real bass, and I was plunking out walking bass lines on upright bass, mm. and I thought, yeah, well, this is the music that I like right away. Mm. I mean, the first two records I had were um, Ed Bickert and John Thompson's The Garden Party thing, mm -hmm. and the other record that I had was Jocko's record. So, you know, we have these two ideas, which are kind of the same, but also drastically different. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> that was the earliest influence. So I was already playing tunes like Tulip and Solar mm -hmm. before I knew anything about what I was doing. Right, right. And just getting some coaching from this piano player guy. Cool. And that sort of like, you know, fine-tuned my taste. And my taste for the electric bass was just because listening to those two concepts, although I totally respect Juan and Ed and what they were doing, mm -hmm. um, I just found that electric bass was more articulate. It was less in between the musician's expression, mm -hmm. like the, the, the effort to expression ratio on electric bass right, is right. like much more favorable towards the player, I think. I see a lot of my heroes are upright bass players and I go watch them play, and you know they're they're putting a lot of effort into making that big thing sing, 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, and clarity too. Yeah, and clarity and really whole hassle of amplification to get your sound at various clubs around the city or around mm-hmm. the world, and you know, bass du jour and all that stuff that those guys have to deal with. That was, mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't thinking with that kind of clarity or foresight back then, mm-hmm. but I was kind of thinking. I mean, I wrestled. I went to Berkeley in my first semester of Berkeley. I had both bases, and I wrestled with amplification so much mm. that I gave up on acoustic bass because, you know, day to day, room to room, I was so frustrated with not being able to get a sound that I just said, "Screw it." Yeah. You okay. Know, I know, get it. Yeah. That's that's the truth of it. So. And in a way, you, you kind of have to have one act. Like, I mean, there's not too many people that can do both, is there? Like, they can really do electric and upright. I mean, there's a lot that do it really quite well. And, you know, there's there's people that do both. And, you know, I don't always think they should do both. You know, mm. there's there's people that, uh, that I like on acoustic bass that may have started on electric bass. Mm. And, you know, and, you know, I don't know. It, we all find our voice, you know. I was uh, fortunate enough to find it early and to sort of let go of the frustration and angst and, you know, financial burden of, you know, right. owning and maintaining and, you know, I mean, it's a big deal and I hats off to the guys that do it because, uh, you know, people like Downs, Karen Robles, Neil, mm-hmm. all these guys in town here that, uh, you know, they've, they've taken on that challenge and, uh, you know, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Kieran has like the best sound in the world. Totally. Right? Yeah, it's great sound. Yeah. And and like how do, how do you how do you do that in this place? You do it at the Rex and you do it at the placebo space with the kids and then you do yeah. it over here. And it's like I can't manage it. Right. <laughs> you know. I just but you know, because of all that and that sort of listening aesthetic, you know, I've got my my father was a studio musician, my mother had R and B on in the kitchen when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. So I have this double-edged thing going on where I'm like I totally dig the groove but I'm kind of like you know jazz musician at heart so mm. those first rec- two records that I had Jocko and, and Bickert it's like that sort of I feel like, that's the whole, me. like those two albums are, I mean those are two I mean th- I feel like the whole universe is in those two you yeah. could probably take those to a desert island and come out playing pretty well quite <laughs> well you know yeah yeah I yeah. mean not that I'm suggesting it, but I, st- I still play along together. I still play the melodies to along together just the same way that Don does more or less. Nice. Not that I want to do that again. But. Yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. Um, so tell me, uh, so did you play Did you play with your dad at all? Is that, I did uh, play did with my dad. Chance? Actually, um, my first experience is playing um, electric bass professionally. I was like, just preteen, like 12, 13 years old. And he was a jingle musician, and one of his best buddies was uh, this guy named Jim Morgan, who was uh, uh, known for being a great bass player in the jingle scene, and also known for uh, being able to do that and be a recording engineer at the same time. So mm-hmm. he'd be plugged into the board and everybody, because he'd be out in the studio, and uh, they'd get the job done. And I, uh, he played on uh, one of my dad's records, and studio playing Jim's bass, you know, plunking around on it. And then um, as a teenager, I played on a couple of jingles because my dad wrote them, not because yeah. you know, I was 
studio musician, but because you know, I have an in. Do jingles <laughs> need a prodigy uh, <laughs> to play well, them? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, you know, it was really interesting experience and, and to do that. And you know, I kind of dig that aesthetic as well. You like to to just you know play the bass notes and mm. and uh, support the whole thing. I think that's why I like you know I still like R and B and you know blues mm. and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm you know I'm the same way. I love to play rhythm guitar. Yeah. You know, occasionally I get to do gigs that are more like Brazilian kind of things or or more kind of old timey swing where the guitar just needs, is supposed to be more of a rhythmic instrument, I'm fully happy to do a whole night of that. Yeah, yeah, you know? totally. My dad was like that. I don't think he ever took a solo in his life, but he would get hired on, like, big sessions with, like, you know, 20, 30 musicians just to be in the rhythm section of his acoustic guitar playing time. Right. You know, because wow. he was really good at it, and, you know, but like I said, I don't think he ever played a solo on record in his life. Right. Cool. That used to be a thing. You could be a rhythm guitar player. You could like be a that was actually player. a job. <laughs> rhythm guitar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he he did it rather well. Cool. And then and so you ended up at Berkeley. I ended up at Berkeley. Uh, yeah. Actually, at uh, sort of, uh, I think Pat LaBarber kind of recommended it. And we had, there was a friend of our family who had studied with Pat privately, and um, I don't know really happened but um, I didn't know Pat at this at this point um, but uh, this friend of ours who studied with Pat you know we were trying to figure out what to do with me if I should go to college at all and if I, if I was gonna go where should I go mm -hmm. um, <coughs> anyway it, it came you know through the grapevine that this recommendation to check out Berkeley from Pat LaBarber was uh, was a thing so um, my I finished high school in the States because my father moved there to do more sort of jingles and voiceover work in the States. So we were living there and, um, you know, we went to check it out and um, recorded an audition cassette, you know, and uh, uh, I got in with the with the scholarship. And it wasn't like a full scholarship or anything, but it was just like, uh, you know, the bread they gave me, like, covered their dorms or something like that, mm -hmm. you know. Pretty sweet deal, um, and I went there um, at uh, at 17 years old, uh, and I was pretty overwhelmed. I thought it was, uh, but I thought it was awesome at the same time because you know you find your group of people, and it was me and this other bass player whose parents brought them and and just practiced together all the time. And he had kind of an opposite aesthetic to my, to mine. You know, he was into like that and so he had a, a very much uh, he liked to work things out ahead of time whereas I was trying to learn how to improvise mm. and, but you know we benefited from knowing each other because, sure. because you know he would give me the discipline to, to piece together what I was trying to learn and stick to it mm. because that's what he did to, mm. to learn set parts that he was into you know yeah sort of have to do some of that before you can sort of unleash yourself on the world because you know if you don't know where you're going bad things can happen so you mean sort of uh, pre-compose some of the things that you're going to need to play in the course of a jazz kind well of like for example um, one of the things I had to do in my first year there was learn Donnelly mm. right and I did 
was not at that point in my life the best the self-discipline to make myself learn all those notes and play them consistently mm -hmm. from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And so I learned from this guy who was from a different musical aesthetic, who was like totally used to learning, you know, these are the notes you're going to play, and you're going to play them that way every time. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that was his thing. Yeah. And that, you know, learning that from that guy um, enabled me to do things like learn Donovan and the handful of things out there that I know. Right, right. You know? Yeah, it's pa really a lot of the battle is patience, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I find uh, it's not like uh, a tune like that or any difficult piece is out of your reach. It's just how much can you focus? Yeah, you exactly. Know? Like a lot of times I'll tell my students that, uh, you know, like with uh, Bach piece, they have to learn Bach not necessarily Bach, but classical pieces. And uh, I'll tell them to learn the first four bars like like they wrote it, like they can just shred on that first four bars mm. and like add two bars every day, mm. you know, and bring those next two bars up to the same level as the first four mm -hmm. and on like that. And I had to learn a piece in high school and that's what my teacher uh, suggested to me. This guy named Arpad Zabo, this guy stole a tank to escape Hungary in, in, in the 1950s. Badass. Uh, yeah, he was a badass. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he was, the guy stole a tank, Hardcore. got out of Hungary, and went to New York and ended up teaching in a high school, teaching music in a high school. And Stranger so, than fiction, eh? You know, if anybody knows how to do hard stuff, it's this guy. Okay. <laughs> right? And he had me learn a piece uh, on string bass when I was in my, my senior year in high school. And, you know, I couldn't. I was like, I can't do way too heavy for me. I can't do this. He said, no, this is what you do. You learn the first four bars and you add like one or two bars a day. Mm. And, and uh, it worked. You know? Great. Cool, man. Anyway, I feel like I'm rambling on your podcast. No, it's totally dude. fine. I like rambling. That's, that's <laughs> what we do, right? That's what we do. So, um, so Berkeley, was that a good experience overall, though? Did you, overall, uh, it was you still a good in touch experience. with any of these, any cats that you played with at that time? or? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm still in touch with a guy named Rob Solo, who was a tenor player originally from uh, Niagara Falls, Ontario. Uh, he, when he was 16, he won like the, the Rising Star Award or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and as a result, you know, he tutored me to, to go to Berkeley. And we didn't know each other while we were here, but, you know, we were both like these 17-year-old guys at Berkeley from Canada. Right. Gravitated towards each other. Uh, he played on my recital, you know, uh -huh. and uh, there was a, a bunch of roommates. There was uh, me and this guy Rob, and Rob is incidentally a, a great tenor player. And he lives and teaches in uh, Italy now, also in Switzerland. He commutes to Switzerland to do some teaching over there. Neat. And uh, works with all kinds of great people. He was just telling me how he was doing free jazz duo gigs with Miroslav Vitas. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know, wow, that's, that's like, very hip. That's something you don't envision on your journey when you're starting out, no, I imagine. Not at all. Um, anyway, you know, he's a great guy and a dear friend. And another guy that, uh, uh, Donnie McCassum, who we were the same year at Berkeley. Hmm. Uh, you know, friends to a certain degree played a little bit in those days. But, you know, you make these connections with people. That's why I think it's really, that's one of the big reasons to go to school. You know, mm -hmm. I think less important whether you uh, I don't know I think it's the most important part for an individual human being 
the recognizes me as body and spirit. Yeah, because they last a lifetime. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Ronnie's still my friend. Rob's still my friend. You know. I still uh, play with a lot of people that I went to Humble with. Like yeah. that kind of makes up your community. Absolutely. You know, in a way. Yeah. yeah, and it's a lifelong thing. Other guys like uh, I don't know if you know the great jazz drummer uh, Ben Krausky. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was he was my my roommate in in the apartment we had while I was at Berkeley. Cool. Um, he also played in my recital. Um, a lot of guys. Uh, Cyrus Tethman was at Berkeley when I was there. Wow, what I, a year! I had I had. Uh, I ended up playing in a band after Berkeley with uh, William Calhoun, who was the, the drummer in uh, Living Color. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of a fusion thing with some, some New York guys. And, um, you know, just a lot of people like that. Right. Um, so and so, uh, are you still into fusion? Is that still something that you're interested in? Um, less so. I, I, I'm reluctant to call it that. I'm, I kind of like, there's an aesthetic that I, I kind of think. Mike Stern is largely responsible for, mm-hmm. and you know, I I grew up going down to the 55 bar and hearing uh, Mike play with Jeff Andrews and Adam was coming because I was studying with Jeff Andrew, uh, Andrews privately at the time, and you'd go down there and you weren't hearing Mike Stern's fusion records, you were hearing Bad Trio by Standard, and it was electric bass, and they would play I Hear Wallstein, and they'd play Yesterdays, and you know, but it was like a little more rocking and a little more groovy mm-hmm. than you know the old school thing. And I was like, well, I got one of those things. You know, those blocks of wood with strings on them. Yeah. And uh, and I don't know. You know, young and impressionable. That I think that's what the formative years are about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just looked at that and said, that's what I want to do. You know, that's cool. what I want to do. And it's you know, it comes in and out of fashion. And Many years of not having opportunity to play jazz on electric bass because right. of you know the perception of the community I lived in at the time, mm-hmm. and it, it changes and it moves around all the time. But you know, it's a little bit harder to make a jazz musician on electric bass. And, but you know, that's why oftentimes I've been able to survive. You know. My father actually discouraged me from becoming a musician because he knew that it was, you know, potentially a hard life. Mm-hmm. He knew that he was extremely lucky, mm-hmm. and that I probably wouldn't be that lucky, right. you know, because it, it was just, his career was a fluke. He just stumbled into it and had great luck every time he set his hand to anything mm-hmm. in music, and you know that's partly why I admire him. But he was also um, the kind of guy that knew that I pro- it probably wouldn't be that way for me, just realistically speaking. Yeah. So he didn't really encourage me to play an instrument or do anything with music until I was practically begging for it. Mm. So I kind of, you know, uh, this is a strange story, and any of uh, your older listeners might find it interesting, but there's a, there's a bass player around, a guy named Garth Bogan, mm-hmm. and I went to, uh, my dad had to meet, you know, some producer or something, uh, and they agreed.
agreed to meet at some club and there was a band playing and Garth Bogan was playing bass. And I said to my dad, I'm probably 12 years old or so, I said, what's that, what's that the guitar with the, just the four strings? I want to do that. Right? So, you know, in a, in a certain way, Garth Bogan was responsible for me being a bass player. And he's like, you know, he's done a lot of work, you know, I think recording and some session work and tons of jobbing and, and touring with, uh, you know, uh, more on the pop side, but, you know, he just happened to be the guy playing the bass that day. Cool. You know, and it was really cool. And uh, so he got a bass uh, from our family doctor who was selling one, and he said to me, my father did, he said, you can, you can keep this bass if you learn all the bass lines off my record, because he had a record of his own original music. said if you can if you can learn all the bass lines off my record in one month you can keep the bass if not it's going back wow right and, and he and he showed me this he showed me this he didn't show me how to get back down <laughs> <laughs> and he showed me this Musician. <laughs> right. Hardcore, yeah. man. Yeah. Uh, well, why don't we play something? Let's play yeah. another tune. Okay. What do you want to play? Uh, I don't know. I'm easy. What mm -hmm. are we? What are we? What were we talking about there earlier? We're talking about uh, my one and only love. Oh yes. What key do you like for that? Uh, we could do it in C, I guess. Okay. Let's do it. I'll just start and like last time. Okay. It'll fit right in. All right. I'll find my way. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
the more of them you group together, they're working in cross purposes in terms of resonating. You know, luthiers would make classical guitars like yours and violins and acoustic basses. That's a different thing because each piece of wood is kind of chosen, mm -hmm. right, to do that, to, to perform a certain function in a certain way. And there's hundreds of years of tradition in it. It's all about instruments, you know. We're not even at 100 years old yet, you know. Wow. So here's the concept. If you play a string, it's just one vibrating thing by itself. to make an instrument you've got to put different pieces together <laughs> but if you're you can think about it before you do it you know I mean this thing it's, it's just you know it what rings, you for, think of this rings for days I mean first of all yeah I mean I can Even though a lot of people think it's an electric instrument, it's still an acoustic instrument. 
if I put a different neck on here, it will sound different. Yeah. You know, um, so the whole thing is resonating, and sure, the magnets in the pickup are picking up vibrations from these the metal string, but the pickup is mounted in a piece of wood, and that's mm -hmm. shaking like crazy when you're playing that too. So it all affects everything, and mm -hmm. so you know, electric instruments are just as acoustic. Oh yeah, we're just not amplifying the acoustic element, mm. although the thing that we are amplified is dramatically affected by the, the acoustic yeah. element. Yeah. Right? Cool. <laughs> now I really like so your your chord melody style that you kind of have going on. I liked what you did. I on have a my chord melody style. You do. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you played a chord melody there, and <laughs> you know your use of harmonics and stuff is very rich. Uh, is that um, is that something you kind of learned from someone, or is that something you kind of developed on your own? Or well, I mean, when I first started playing, and I heard that Jocko record, and he he played Portrait of Tracy, which I never learned, by the way, hmm. because I just sort of thought, you know, first of all, I was like a you know bratty little kid who thought that this guy who I just now heard of at twelve or thirteen years old, I can't remember which, uh, you know, had done what I had hoped to and dreamed. That I would do someday, and it had already been done, and I was like, you know, I couldn't tear myself away from that record, but I was also kind of like mad that somebody had done it first, because I was going to be the guy. Oh, that that's a pretty intense yeah. relationship. <laughs> well, I got to meet him later on. That's another story. But um, and he was very kind to me on uh, three separate occasions, and and, uh, and uh, he actually was. I don't know. If you want to hear the story, I'll tell the story. Uh, um, in answer to your first question, I heard him doing Portrait of Tracy, and I thought, well, uh, you know, and then I asked my dad, how's he doing that? Because he was a guitar player. And he said, well, harmonics here. It's like, you know, by the time I was playing bass, he showed me how to intonate it using harmonics. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I said, oh, okay. So the, they, and on electric bass with nominal strings, it's like you can get a harmonic just about everywhere. sort of slowly set about understanding what's happening there. You know, if I want kind of a C thing, kind of another C thing. So you're dialing third position, so you're finding what's available. Yeah. Okay. Wow. There's stuff yeah. there. And, you know, you assemble it make a pleasing sound and then you analyze the sound and figure out what chord it is so you know I've got these set things that I do and sometimes you know I do them too much but that's you know sort of where I come from you know like and uh, on I, one of the tunes we played I kind of missed the tonic and you know bailed out by playing the harmonics like you know sure <laughs> yeah, yeah I like and that so, so it's like you know if I see B flat major 7 I'm like Way too often, I'm probably gonna go like this, right? Because right. I can, and it sounds cool, and I got this groovy bass where it sustains for a long time and everything. So I get to play the sharp eleven, which is the greatest note of all. Right, <laughs> it is. <laughs> and if if it's just the you know E flat seven or an E flat triad. Hey, seven sharp nine with harmonics. There you go. I didn't know. Yeah. Cool. Uh, the tritone. Yeah. So I love that. And same thing here. 
they are and when I can use them. And, you know, for me, because I'm kind of slow that way, uh, it took me years to reliably see a chord symbol and go, okay, I can do this now. Yes, right. And then, you know, years after that, developed a taste to, like, when do you do it and when not to do it. Because mm. there's probably going to be a chord player in the band that's going to give me a look at me sideways because I'm paying attention when he's, like, you know, his voice and it's not going to accommodate. Right. So it's like you've got to develop some instincts with it. Sure. Yeah, you know, yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, when I was, you know, from 17 to, you know, 20, I just... I did that like all the time. Tons of sound. <laughs> lots and lots of sound. That's cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just like, you know. We all go through that, members. eh? Like, yeah. my friend Ryan always always say, you know, like, this stage, I don't mind filling up all the space, you know? When I get older, I'll maybe edit, but now yeah, I'll just fill exactly. it all up, you know? It's like, I think about uh, my, my days at Berkeley, and I almost think, you know, like, if I'd been paying attention, I, I could have learned so much more, but, you know, the whole time I was there, I was... I was the guy who could do this. Because I, I learned how to do that, and I was obsessed with that record, and I learned those grooves. I never looked at solos. I just mm -hmm. looked at the grooves, because that's what appealed to me about them and his sound. Okay. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, so while I was at Berkeley, and we're all, like, you know, uh, signing out on ensemble rooms and playing sessions, mm. you know, they got me to do that. So I wasn't learning to him. I wasn't expanding my repertoire. Right. I was just like, oh, get him because he can do that. Mm. Right. And that was like valuable and also detrimental at the same time because, you know, it wasn't until I started studying uh, with Jeff Andrews, who really had uh, and has still uh, like a, a vast knowledge of, of diatonic harmony and bebop, bebop vocabulary on electric bass. Luckily for me, those two processes, the, the Berkeley thing where I was grooving out all the time, and Jeff Andrews, they overlapped. He came to Boston with Mike Stern's band. I met him, I got his number, and when I got to New York in the summer, I started studying with him. So I actually, mm. you know, I actually got benefit of, like, I got to bust out of my, my little groove rut mm -hmm. and actually learn some, some music and some vocabulary. Right. What, what do you tell young bass, electric bassists that are interested in learning bebop vocabulary? Because it must pose some significant problems to, to make that happen. I mean, in terms of like tone, feel, and just playability on a four-string fretted. Yeah, I see a lot of young bass players who are, you know, they're. I think it's really important for young bass players to learn how to operate the mechanics of an instrument. You know, it has a truss rod, it has a bridge with an adjustable action can do the intonation yourself like pretty well just by ear by you know moving the bridge styles around and making the making the harmonic match the fretted note and when those two are in tune you know then the whole neck's going to play in tune mm -hmm. you see a lot of kids playing basses with the action too high or too low or or you know the upper register is out of tune because mm -hmm. you know i mean i like to i don't even know if my bass is that in tune right now but the highest note on my instrument is a D, and the lowest note on my instrument is a D. Mm -hmm. They're about as far apart as they can be, and they're in tune. Cool. And, it, and you know, it took me about ten minutes with a tuner and a screwdriver to achieve that. Mm -hmm. And I see no reason why, you know, a young electric bass operator. <laughs> operator. <laughs> I love that. I love that. 
you know, you got to learn how to operate the machinery before you can get creative with it, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, so that's one of the first things. Is okay. Like their instrument should be played. Get it working right. Get yeah. it working right. Get it working right. Um, and we all have sort of sounds that we like. You know, some people like a, a big open string sound like Anthony Jackson or, or a, you know, a really gnarly groovy sound like Mike Smith. Or, or uh, I sort of consider my own sound as like, you know, developmentally hybridized from Jocko Jeff Berlin, which is like a little more focused and uh, I don't know, your guitar player, so you know what this means. Like his pickup is even closer to the bridge, so it's a little more, mm-hmm. you know, in your face mid range. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'd say like uh, Jeff Andrews and Victor Bailey, who have that sort of, you know, descended from Jocko bridge pickup sound, but. You know, a little warmer, and their instrument is set up to respond. Like you know, when you move your clunky hand away from the bridge, you know, you get some warmth out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 And uh, I don't know. I kind of forget where I was going, but right. Yeah. Well, just like you know, being able to work out the bebop repertoire on the bass. So. Right. I'm getting there. I'm yeah. Sorry. That's all good. It's all yeah. good. Uh, I think. One of the first things you need to do is, uh, um, I mean, if you have a bass clef, Charlie Parker Omnibook, you're going to learn so much about bebop, because just the melodies, never mind the solos, just mm-hmm. the melodies are like bebop school. Yeah. And if you can get yeah. that under your fingers from taking it off the paper and put it under your fingers. And I learned so much about fingering from doing that, because, you know, you gotta, you, nobody really talks about this or thinks of it. Those bebop guys, they they did most of their damage inside of one octave, you know, hmm. or or as it, as I observed from the major seventh below to the ninth above, then you can you know you can conquer bebop. Right. And on a on a you know if you've got at least four strings, that's one position. Wow. And you can do a lot of damage. So one of the things I do Heavy. for like the bass line is like get my students to to play. Rhythm change is walking baseline in one position. Right? Right. Like and that. you are all in the uh, sixth position for that. Yeah. 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 I just kind of, you know, it's an oversimplification, and maybe I shouldn't say it out loud, but I do think this way. That if I'm kind of in a in a major key or in a major set of mine, mm-hmm. um, you know, my middle finger, my left hand is is sort of centered over the tonic. Mm-hmm. And if it's minor, my first finger, my left hand is centered over the mm-hmm. tonic. And my That's hand. actually how I teach the modes on guitar to people. Uh, uh, is uh, the minor ones start with the index, and the major ones start with right. the middle. Right. Right. Exactly. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. There's there's really you know there's a handful of shapes, and if you add to that. Like the, the half hole thing. Right. That tetrachord exists in so many of the modes. Mm. And I kind of teach my students to, like, well, there's that tetrachord. Once you get into harmonic minor, jazz minor, and harmonic major, the, that tetrachord happens somewhere in every mode. Mm-hmm. So you're fingering, you know, calculations or deductions or whatever. 
should be sort of based on where that touch report comes mm -hmm. because that touch report requires uh, a certain fingering depending on your hand and your style and your instrument mm -hmm. to play cleanly. So I'm figuring out, you know, I don't know. I think you know what I mean, right? I do. I totally yeah. know what you mean, yeah. And so that, that tetrachord can happen along one string with a slit, with a position shift, or it can be divided across strings with two notes on either string. Right. Right? So those are the two options. And so then you base the rest of your position around where that's going to hang. Yeah. Yeah. And it also, I mean, for me anyway, in my simple mind, it helps me remember which scale is which. Because this one has a tetrachord on top, and this one starts with the tetrachord, and this one starts, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, I wrote a book about it, but I still don't know the names of all the notes that I know. You oh, know I mean? <laughs> you, oh know? you did write a book about it, <laughs> Harmonic Origins. Oh, okay. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that. Available at Hulu.com. Okay. Yeah. What's that again? Hulu.com. Lulu.com. Okay. Yeah. And basically, it's um, it's all the uh, modes of the four scale systems that that I think of anyway. Uh, major, harmonic, minor. I put harmonic minor second instead of jazz minor, which is maybe a little more traditional approach because I think harmonic minor is a little more emotionally evocative. Mm -hmm. You know, you can you can put some real spice and flavor in a in a in a improvised solo. Mm -hmm. More so with harmonic minor, I think. I totally agree. Yeah. I teach that first as yeah. well. I think it's it's old. It's more old school. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. it's coming from a very you know passionate emotional place. I think mm -hmm. that that scale, whoever came up with this thing in the first place, you know, mm -hmm. it goes back. You know, it, I, I'm. It must go back before notation. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. I think. And uh, uh, so anyway, the book is, uh, you know, major harmonic minor jazz minor and uh, harmonic major and there's seven diatonic chords that come from each scale so I have the I have the the mode then I have the arpeggio to the 13th um, then I have the arpeggio broken up into four four note modes so you can see that um, well let's see like a Lydian major seven mm -hmm. So yeah. that means when you hear this, C major 7 sharp 11, you can play your B minor 7 shit. Pardon the expression. I see. Yeah. Ah, okay. Right? Cool, cool. Right? And, and it's just like to put it under the student's fingers and create the awareness that, you know, every chord is has seven notes. Especially for bass players, because what you know, bass players' tendency is to you know, play the root. That's their job, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So you want to maybe not do that all the time. Maybe yeah. You want to play the pretty stuff, you know. Sure. For me, this comes up with students when um, you know, trying to get them to create longer lines, and I get them to play on changes that aren't even there. Right. You know. And, uh, it, and it just tends to change their way of thinking, too. They, they have this vocabulary that is very sort of chord-specific, 
So if you think on a different chord and apply it to another, you know, it's reharmonizing basically while you're improvising. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very. It's one of the essential components of bebop. I think uh, yeah. is to play on changes that aren't there. Yeah, and I want to say too, like uh, out loud on your podcast, that uh, I I sort of owe this thinking to uh, mainly to Jeff Anders because you know he's the one that pointed out to me. I mean, I got to him and I could play. Mm-hmm. You know, and and then we play a tune and I would solo and he would solo and he would just smoke me harmonically. Mm. You know, and it's like that's what I came here for. That's what I want to know how to do. What are you doing there? And he he would incessantly say, "Practice your arpeggios." Right. Right. And just in the last you know seven years or so, I've really been on top of that. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And and somebody called me on it. They said, you know, you talk about arpeggios all the time, but, you know, I don't really hear it in your playing. It's like, well, it's more the, for me at this point, it's more the ear training aspect. Hmm. It's like having the awareness of the entire chord Mm -hmm. while you're hearing it, and also being able to react, like when you play an exception, you hear voicings, and it's got all kinds of juicy bass going. Mm -hmm. I'll be able to hear it and instinctively play something Mm -hmm. that sounds good and works rather than having to go, okay, well, he's playing a sharp 11 there and, uh, you know, like, you know, it's supposed to be instinctive. So I I sort of operate um, on this principle that, you know, if you put information in, it'll be there, right? Mm -hmm. And um, muscle memory is huge. If you practice your arpeggios, even if you don't ever consciously try to use them or apply them, which you should, they'll be there anyway. Because, you know, you hear that arpeggio from the root up to the 13th and back down again. Um, You're the guy making the sound, right? Mm -hmm. So when somebody else makes the sound, you go, ah, I know what to do with that. Right, right. And, you know, it's kind of a simplistic approach, but, you know, that's that's me. Keep it simple. (laughs) That's what I say all the time. Yeah. All right, well, everyone go to lulu.com and pick up Harmonic Origins by Von Meiser. Hey, thanks for saying yeah, that. Yeah, please, everyone go do that. Now, um, before we play one more tune, uh, so you got to hang with, uh, with, um, sorry, my mind just went blank all of a sudden. Again. Bass player? Yeah, of course. Uh, oh, Jocko. You got to hang with Jocko Pistorius. Oh my goodness. All right, I'll try to keep this. Uh, Did you guys party? No. Okay. No. no Maybe that's a, a douchebag question to ask. <laughs> Not really. I mean, you know, he kind of had a reputation for it, even though the reputation wasn't necessarily true. Mm -hmm. It would would seem that way a lot of the time. Ah, because he was like kind of a hippie, right? Well, he was, uh, I mean, he was uh, mentally ill. Ah. He was mentally ill, and a lot of people misinterpreted his behavior for being, um, as being, uh, you know, altered by substances. Right. Which he hardly ever was. Hardly ever did that, and there's lots of stories. I mean, you know, he went there eventually mm. during the bad years, but I don't know anything about that personally, so I'm not going to speak on it. Okay. Right. All I know is that I met him three times, and he was very kind to me mm. each time. And uh, the third time was especially emotional. Uh, June, August of 1983, um, I was about to go to Berkeley. I was 17 years old, and. Uh, condone this behavior, but I went to 7th Avenue South with a high school buddy of mine and took the train in from into New York from where I was living to go to high school um, <coughs> and saw Jocko's small band 
at 7th Avenue South, which I believe was a club that was owned by the Brecker Brothers. Um, and uh, went to hear him play, and he did s some of what you would expect him to do. Um, and one of the things that struck me about that performance, and this, this is an aside, but I'll put it in there, they played the chicken, as you would expect. Mm -hmm. But man, they did it so down and dirty, it was ridiculous. They did, you know, everybody expects... set of that and it was my first time drinking ever and I actually to this day don't do very much of that but it was my first time and I did a big time okay um, and so you know I had a lot of liquid courage and I was only 17 so the set broke and he was standing there talking to a waitress or something and I walked up and interrupted him and said <laughs> I said like a like a like a jackass like a drunk 17 year old jackass I said Hey, I'm Vaughn, you know, I'm going to Berkeley in, in September. And he said, oh yeah, that's, that's a great school. And I said, good. Listen, I want to ask you something. I said, uh, I said, look, I can do most of the things you can do, but I can't do them for as long. And like, you know, that sounds like a real well, jerky question. Yeah, yeah. but there's something, and I was deep, talking there's about something the deep about that question as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, maybe. Thank yeah. you for thinking so. Yeah. But I was talking about those grooves. And, you know, you'd hear him play or some of the records with Weather Report and stuff like that. And, I mean, he's doing that for a really long time. And I would do that when I was practicing and my right arm would just cramp up. And I was like, man, I can't, mm. can't hold that groove for that long. Mm. Anyway, in answer to my question, he says, he put his arm around me and he said, that's the most intelligent thing anybody said to me. I said, most people ask me what kind of pick or what kind of strings I use, and I don't even use a pick. Right. Right. And uh, so he took me over to the bar, and, he, and uh, he said, how old are you? I said, I'm 17. And he said, man, when I was your age, I was playing five sets a night. That's how I could do it. You do a, you know, like a dinner duo someplace, and then you go play the main gig three sets. Mm -hmm. right? So that's four sets, and then like all night long at the after hours club, mm -hmm. right? Which was, you know, that existed, and you can still make that happen today if you're motivated. Drag your ass out there with your kid. Sure. It's harder now, but yeah. it can still be done, right? And, uh, uh, but that was it. It was just playing all the time. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, stamina by fire, really. You know, like he could, he could play for that long, that hard, mm -hmm. that way, because he was in an actual playing situation where he had to. Right. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> He's really in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then he started talking to me about, you know, I'll stick around after the gig, we'll take you to my place, and we'll give you a lesson and everything. Nice. And I was, uh, I was in, the, in the men's room, and I was standing beside uh, Alex Foster, the, the alto saxophone player. Some people will know who he is. Uh, he was in the Saturday Night Live band for a while. He's mm -hmm. kind of got a, you know, a, you know, big hair, tall afro kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
great saxophone player. And uh, he says, yeah, I saw you were talking to Jocko there. I said, did he invite you to his place? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay and then I'm going to go and get a lesson. You know, he was super keen, right? Mm -hmm. And Alex Foster said, yeah, you don't want to do that now. Because <laughs> by this point, this is 1983, and, and you know, sort of the... the episodes, the, the mental illness episodes would, would kind of like pop up a little more frequently by this point. Uh, right? okay. I don't know if you've heard the stories of the trio of doom with John McLaughlin and you know they got to go to Cuba to do this big thing with Tony Williams, Jocko yeah. and John McLaughlin and like you know he would like just start soloing and he wouldn't play the bass line and you know right. crazy stuff. Would, it would just happen once in a while and he wasn't in control of it. Mm -hmm. Which is a lead into my next story but um Apparently, Alex Foster told me that, you know, he had already basically opened up his, you know, uh, New York City loft that was, like, paid for by Weatherport money mm. uh, to, like, like, this is also what it illustrates what a generous spirit he was. He, he like, he had made the money, and he was a little nuts, okay, but uh, he had opened up his apartment to homeless people. He just, like, you know, he took the locks out and said, man, you can stay at my like radically generous yeah like radically generous yeah radically exactly generous. exactly but i mean you know whatever people say about him you know he had a huge heart yeah right yeah. and you could all you had to do was like shake his hand and look him in the eye and you knew that right like like he really cared about you mm. you know that's heavy and uh, uh the other time he was definitely a bit off his rocker and uh, i think had you know been medicated and was wrestling with you know getting used to medication or, or doing it for a while and getting off of it. I know a lot of people with mental health issues when they when they you know they don't stick to their regime mm -hmm. it, it exacerbates any behavioral problems. So this friend of mine who I used to play in bands with uh, in New York City, this guy named Scott Brown, a keyboard player, a really soulful, groovy guy, you know, um, and he was kind of plugged into. Uh, a lot of different people. He used to copy parts for Gil Evans because they lived in the same building. And he, uh, you know, he knew Jocko. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of the band that um, it's Hiram Bullock and uh, Jocko Pastorius and Kenwood Denard. And they used to do like Hendrix tunes and Bob Marley tunes. And, you know, they'd rock out. Cool. Right. And, uh, but by that time, Jocko was probably even more erratic. This is like maybe two summers later exactly one summer two summers later um, anyway Scott used to play in that band sort of invisibly he would kind of set up a keyboard behind the drummer and mm. he would play the bass lines because Jocko would kind of abandon them sometimes and mm. he would just start playing over top of everything in a really like you know exciting way but right, right. you know as an old roommate of mine used to say well who's playing the bass when you're doing that right, <laughs> right. and uh, Anyway, um, I met him that day. They were they were loading in for like a sound check where they were going to play, and and my friend Scott made the mistake of saying to Jocko, I said, "Hey, Jocko, this is my friend Vaughn. He's a bass player. He sounds just like you." At which point, Jocko gave me the finger and stuck his tongue out at me, 
Right. And then we sat down in a booth and ordered some food, and he looked at me right in the eye across the table, and I was like really scared for a minute. And yeah. I said, Don't worry, man. I was just messing with you. Right. <laughs> nice, nice. But you can't, you know, you have to imagine like he's Jaco Pastore. Yeah. And my idiot friend says, and he sounds just like, well, of course I didn't, but I was still in that phase where I was yeah. like trying yeah. to be like that, you know, as oh. we all do when we're young, mm-hmm. right? Anyway, so you know, we hang, uh, we hung out at uh, the Lone Star Cafe, mm-hmm. uh, and in New York, and you know, in the afternoon, and, and had a beer and some fries, cool. with Jaco in the booth. That was the second time I met him, and then uh, the third time I met him. This would have been just before he moved to back to Fort Lauderdale. Um, it was the he was led out of Bellevue Hospital to uh, um, he did a record where he arranged uh, steel pan mm-hmm. music um, all in his own compositions and I think and I don't think the record ever got released but you can find it if you dig around for it and he doesn't really play on it he just arranged it and he plays a little bit. Right on it, but he was pretty far gone by this this point. And there was some contractual deal where, with his record label, where they were they weren't gonna release him from his contract until he completed the album. Right. He, you know, he needed the bread for his kids or something. I don't know the specifics. Yeah. There's stuff in the biographies about that. Okay. And I don't even know how much of that is true, except I know that I that uh, I was walking down Bleecker Street um, in New York City when uh, I hear somebody behind me going, hey, Vaughn, hey, hey, Vaughn. And I turn around, and it's Jocko. So number one, I'm like blown away because he remembers my name. Cool. Right? And number two, I'm sitting there going like, he's looking kind of rough, right? And uh, um, he asked me if, if, uh, if I had 20 bucks. He said, I'm at Electric Ladyland Studios. I'm mixing this record, and I want to get some pizza and beer for the guys, right? And he was looking pretty rough, and mm-hmm. almost like, I, first of all, I didn't have the 20 bucks because I'm a young, struggling bass player in New York yeah, City yeah, yeah. in my early 20s, yeah. and uh, I didn't have the 20 bucks to give him, and, you know, he almost didn't believe why he wanted it because he was looking so rough, yeah. right? And, I mean, I couldn't, and I felt really badly about it. And I walked away, and then like a year later, he was gone. Mm-hmm. Right? And then, in my own research later on, I didn't learn the part about him being released from Bellevue for 48 hours to mix that record. And I just happened to be there that day. No way. And he asked me for 20 bucks that I crazy, didn't have. Man. That's yeah. crazy. And it was like really heavy and touching and everything. But the first time, you know, you still had a, the first time I met him, you still had a, a sense of, of who he was and his, his big personality and yeah. his, his uh, you know, loving nature and, and his passion for everything. I mean, you know, you shake your hand and his fingers come halfway up to your elbow, you know, and it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, I always thought you were cool, but now I can feel it, you yeah, know, yeah. it's like, okay, you are so much, you know, beyond what I thought you were, mm. you know. Meet somebody like that and look them in the eye, and you go, "Okay, not only is he a real person who's uh, down to earth and and like just amazingly generous of spirit, you know, right, right. Um, like you never would have imagined." I mean, you know, he's got his isms, you know, sure. everything that that 
is in the press about them. You know, I mean, that stuff, a lot of it is true, but there's a, another component that you don't know unless you touch the man. Yeah. You know, you know. And interestingly enough, I got the same feeling from Steve Swallowhorn a couple years ago for that. Cool. And it's like, you know, electric bass jazz guys, we yeah. got to stick together. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. That's uh, amazing mm. to hear about that kind of first person. Contract. It's nice to be two degrees of separation from Jacques <laughs> Pistorius right now to hang with you. Well, like um, I'm not it's pretending cool. like I knew him or we hung out or anything. But no, you but know, I, you got, know. I got to I got to meet him a couple of times, and you know, even though I didn't, you know, I wasn't close with him. You know, yeah, he he made the effort to you know mm-hmm. affect my life. You know, like in a, in a direct way by giving me you know some real advice. Amazing. Yeah. So let's play a tune. Call it a day. What do you okay. want to do? I don't know. Why don't you pick really one? We'll do a blues. Yeah, let's do, do a blues. blues. Okay. Let's do, uh, let's do, um, you know what? Let's do uh, A flat. A flat. Right. A flat. That cool? Yeah, absolutely. The medium up kind of thing? Sure. One, two, one, two, three. <laughs> Thank you. 
fun. That was a great time, man. Uh, just before we go, uh, are you playing anywhere coming up that you'd like to let people know about? Yes, I'm playing with the awesome uh, uh, Kevin Dempsey Trio at Manhattan's in Guelph uh, this Saturday, with also with uh, Dave Restivo on piano, which nice. is always a pleasure. And I'm uh, also playing February 1st, a week today, at the Rex with my trio, which features Ted Quinlan and Kevin Dempsey from that band as well. Very nice. So Very nice. Come out if you can, and uh, you know, support live music. Support my man, Nathan. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. If you're in Guelph, man, the pizza at Manhattan's is out of sight. I'm looking forward to it. I like food. Yeah. I play jazz. I like food. (laughs) Great. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care, man. Take care, man.